from the campus of Stanford University, this is Schools In. They believe that what we're being told is everything they need to know, and they just pay attention to that. You actually have to teach the teachers how to teach for innovation. With your hosts, Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. Welcome to Schools In. I'm Denise Pope, Senior Lecturer with the Graduate School of Education here at Stanford, with my co-host, Dan Schwartz, Dean of the Graduate School of Education. Dr. Denise Surfit of Confidence Pope. Oh my, Surfit of Confidence. I don't even think that is that even a thing. Okay, okay. <laughs> not not all of them are good. Uh, so I, I want to today. We're talking with Claude Steele, and he's made uh, a number of important discoveries that have had large practical implications uh, out of social psychology and how people view themselves, and and in the context in which they find themselves. So I, I want to set the stage. And I don't know if this story is going to fit what uh, Claude wants to talk <laughs> about or anybody, it. but I don't care because I want to tell. See. So, I, uh, so I taught in LA and I got, uh, there's a reduction in force, which means they ran out of money. So I went and I taught in a small but mighty native Alaskan village in the middle of Alaska. Uh, and like 250 people, 150 kids, uh, too far away to, for radio signal. It was really remote. How, you went from L.A., a bustling metropolis, to Alaska. Oh, who wouldn't? But anyway, so so one of the things was I was the basketball coach. Oh, right? oh and, it's getting better. Yeah, so, so I, I didn't the, know about you. The, the, co- the team had to be co-ed because there wasn't enough. And so whenever we played games, you'd fly to the away games because there's no roads. But I also played basketball. And I played for my town, Caltag, and we would often play against New Lotto that was 35 miles away and they <laughs> – so, so uh, I'm going to ratchet up kind of the level of stress I'm feeling. So um, the, I'm at the free throw line, shooting free throw. Turns out this is the shot that determines whether we win or lose in a tournament where this is our final chance, and if we lose, we're gone. And so I'm at the line, and all this pressure's in my head, and then somebody – uh, from the audience yells chichaco which which translated basically means stupid white guys can't make free throws <laughs> okay and so all this is up right and and you would think free throws mechanical and so i took the shot and don't no, leave us hanging dan <laughs> what happened i missed oh. but but it is interesting how these things accumulate and then these ones where it suddenly i believe i'm sort of going to fulfill some negative stereotype was kind of like the, the straw on the camel's back. It, it broke me, you know, and, and so I underperformed because of all that stress. Okay, now I just want to push back just a second here. Do you think that if the person hadn't have said that, you would have made it? <laughs> I'm just right. asking, Dan. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm blaming the other guy. I know. Yeah, just yeah, to yeah. me, it sounds like you're putting a little bit of blame on that. Uh, it didn't help. It didn't help. It didn't I help. think that's I, fair. I, I might have choked anyway. It, okay. But that really, that got into your head. You felt it in the moment. So, so yeah, I'm thinking about what they said. Yeah. You know, and, and I mean, it, uh, it, it's not like it punctured my heart. It's just, it was something, it was just like another thing that was sort of in there and is siphoning off resources from my form and a distraction. Interesting. Mm-hmm. No, it, it's... Uh, uh, if I if I were to give you a math test, one of your favorite, oh yeah, and then and then I gave you the Barbie, you know that Barbie. What Barbie? There was this Barbie that at one point I think mm-hmm. said, uh, "I can't do math." I can't. Yeah, uh, it said something like, "Math is hard." 
Oh, you're kidding <laughs> it, me. It would, it, would, it would bug you, right? Yeah, it would bug me for a whole bunch of reasons it would bug me. Yes. That Barbie's <laughs> saying math is hard. I, I don't think that Barbie lasted too long. <laughs> oh, it was my pretty... gosh. Okay, so we have uh, the world's expert in, in this arena where attributions that people put upon you uh, and that you may or may not adopt for yourself can can really cause difficulty. So this is uh, Professor Claude Steele. He's emeritus of psychology at Stanford. His career has spanned many, many branches of social psychology, but he's focused mainly on three things, uh, stereotype threat, self-affirmation, and addictive behaviors. His book, Whistling Vivaldi and Other Clues to How Stereotypes Affect Us, explored the phenomenon that many minority students underperform in college despite being very qualified to be there. And so he's gonna help us understand how stereotypes impact school performance in surprising ways, even including health. So what, I think the easiest question, what is stereotype threat? It's being in a situation where you're, you're doing something um, or the situation itself is relevant to a negative stereotype about one of your identities, like in your case, your race, um, maybe your age, could be your religion, could be the region of the country you, you come from. Uh, you're in a situation where a bad idea about one of those identities is relevant to what you're doing. Uh, and if you care about that, you care about doing well in it, you, you could feel uh, upset by the prospect of being seen that way or treated in terms of that, that stereotype. Uh, so the, that's what stereotype threat is. Um, you can tell from that general description, there's all kinds of forms of it. Uh, yeah. And yeah. Uh, some are, are kind of funny. Uh, and <laughs> humorful. Others are, you know, really traumatic because they are in an area of life that you really want to succeed in, but you consistently face this prospect of being seen in terms of some stereotype about one of your identities. Uh, you're, you're a woman trying to succeed in advanced level math or something. Yeah. So um, how, how did you discover this? Well, we started with the, with the, with the output of it, which was... I, I, if I discovered anything, it would be the underperformance, the mysterious underperformance of of, of uh, minority students at the college level in, an, in a, an elite, strong college, and the underperformance of women in, in advanced STEM classes. That is, they've got the same measured uh, abilities and skills, but when you look down the road, they weren't doing as well, and they weren't staying in those areas. They weren't persisting as, as much. So that was the phenomenon that just, well, why would that be? If, you, if they have the same preparation, the same skills, the same abilities, you thought as an educator, if you got things to that point, uh, people would, would equally prosper, right. uh, but they don't. And uh, so one of the explanations of that, I think there are some other possibilities, but one uh, is stereotype threat. And, and in trying to figure that out, we uh, over some years came to the concept of stereotype threat. So you would, you'd go into the laboratory and you'd put people in conditions where they were either under threat or not, and you'd see did that cause them to underperform? Yeah, Is that the yeah. We could, we would, we tried to bring into the laboratory what what we'd seen in the real world as underperformance. So you bring women and men into who you you know have the equal skills. So you carefully match them in their uh, math. Uh, skills and abilities, and then you give them a really difficult test. It's going to be frustrating, and that frustration is what makes the stereotype about women's math ability relevant to them as a personal interpretation of what's going on. 
so the, that's the difference between a woman taking that test and a man taking that test. The man is worried that the frustration means he isn't as good as he thought he was, but uh, the woman has that worry plus the worry that, oh, am I confirming what yeah. they say about women or am I going to be seen to confirm that? And that extra uh, threat uh, absorbs your cognitive energies and, and you don't do as well. You underperform, even though you've got the same ability in the situation. Did they? And so you're not priming them by saying women are bad at math or handing them the Barbie that says math is hard. This is literally, they've just said that to you afterwards. You don't have to <clears throat> prime it. It's, it's, the, it's the frustration with the task that makes the a stereotype in a society, in, in our society, relevant as a possible interpretation. You don't know if that's true, but now a certain amount of your mental energy is is defending against it. Um, and, whoops. <laughs> this is I'm defending myself against the microphone here. <laughs> good job. That's a good left We're going to edit that out. Okay. But, um, Hold it's, on one so second. you don't have to say anything. Okay. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope, and we are speaking today with Claude Steele, a professor emeritus of psychology at Stanford, about stereotype threat. So, so the ambiguity, the frustration, the insecurity allows the stereotype to acquire you, basically. You get acquired by the stereotype. Yeah. I, it, you know, one thing I, I always want to be careful about, it, it isn't that the women believe the stereotype or necessarily feel inadequate themselves. Uh, it, it happens most. The pressure is felt the most by women who, who, are, who are the most confident and the most skilled in the area. What makes you susceptible to this threat is caring about doing well in this area where your group is negatively seen. That's the poignancy of the situation. So the ones who actually do care about doing well in the area where their group is negatively seen uh, are the women who are often really good at math and have high confidence in their abilities. But now they're really at the frontier of their skills in a frustrating situation. And that's when that stereotype presents itself as a possible thing that, that they're confirming or that they're going to be seen to confirm, or they're going to be treated that way through the lens of that stereotype. And because they care so much about it, it's upsetting and distracting. And that's what that upsetness and distractedness, that's what undermines performance. So if I were doing a college classroom, uh, in, and say in math, if somehow I could remove the evaluative component of it, do you think uh, it would allow everybody to, to yeah. flourish? Yeah, I do. If you reduce the stakes, if you lower the stakes of a test, I've always yeah. felt standardized tests should shouldn't be given in one sitting, one shot, you no know, chance for a redo. Yeah, yeah, like wow, that's like, you know, why don't you do it over the course of high school, for example? Right. You know, every two weeks you get a, you get a chance to to take a portion of the SAT or something like that, yeah. uh, and or, you could retake just, it if you not. wanted to. You know, yeah. the, the performance you'd get under those circumstances, where where the where there's not that much pressure, would probably be more predictive. Than the performance than is the performance that you get under these high pressure, high stakes situations. So I have a question about the book title. Why Whistling Vivaldi? It's a story. Uh, black guy walking down the streets of Hyde Park. Big guy. Uh, it turns out to be Brent Staples, who's a, now a, a columnist for the New York Times. But he was a graduate student then, and he walks uh, down the street in Hyde Park in Chicago, and he realizes that that he's Whites are avoiding eye contact and crossing the street to avoid him. And, you know, he realizes he's being seen through the lens of a stereotype as a possibly menacing African-American male. 
So that's the situation. Uh, he learns just by accident that if he whistles Beatles tunes or Vivaldi, they <laughs> see him differently. <laughs> he tries this. They relax. They don't avoid him. He relaxes. And so uh, whistling Vivaldi is the way of presenting himself to deflect himself from being seen through this stereotype uh, mm -hmm. that he's susceptible to. Uh, because of his features in that in that situation. Great so, story. So that's Great the, story. That's the story. So the Ingham, the lesson is there are things you can do about this. This is not something that you have no control over, right? There are there are there things that you can do. There are things that you can do. I wish I could say that there you know uh, pop out a real uh, you know ten item list of things that that would that would work uh, perfectly. I, I think they're they're uh, a little more subtle. Uh, one one thing that I think is really important in in by understanding of stereotype threat, the way I and the many people who work on this, some of the the best of whom are right here at Stanford, um, have come to understand, is that it they suggest that in a in a, a diverse classroom that there needs to be an opportunity to build trust because trust is what real, I, I need to trust that you're not going to see me this way. And, and, that, and I can do that in a friendship. I trust you're not going to see me in terms of the stereotype. And I relax, and it's gone. Uh, so a lot of it is relational, what you have to do to eliminate the, the threat, is to build a rapport with, with students uh, that, that assures them this isn't how you're going to see them. Uh, then, then it's kind of not, not, not an issue. Uh, things that individuals can do, uh, you know, believing, you know, Carol Dweck's work gives, I think, some really handy strategies of viewing ability as, as uh, expandable. And, and uh, then, then the thing that the stereotype about is not so all condemning if, I don't, if I'm not good at it. It's, it's something I can get better at as opposed to an ability that I just don't have. So there are strategies. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We are speaking with Claude Steele, expert on the concept of stereotype threat. So here, here's, a, here's a problem, and, and so I could use your help on this. Mm -hmm. I was talking to an engineering professor here who's uh, he's, he's Latino, and he's very concerned to increase, increase representation. And he was talking about a Latino woman who came to Stanford and to get in, she's probably the very best in her school. And so her academics and her ethnic identity weren't particularly tied to each other. She comes here, she takes her first exam, and just like all students, she does poorly on that exam. Mm -hmm. But she doesn't know everybody else has done poorly as well. Mm -hmm. And it shakes her confidence. And she starts to begin to associate her ethnicity with her academic performance. Mm -hmm. Begins to say things like, well, maybe they just admitted me because uh, you know X, Y, Z. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I asked him, how long does it take for a student like that to recover? And his answer was he thought it took about two years. Hmm. It took the student about two years to develop a more complex identity so that they were no longer defining themselves and the world around them by these simple, simple categories. Mm -hmm. Does this seem, seem reasonable, like two years? Uh, like a, yeah, it doesn't, that's what, what, that kind of is what I was alluding to earlier. There's not just snap solutions yeah. that you can just pull out and not feel that way. I think you know, if you really want to get a, a stereotype threat is something everybody experiences, so they can use their own form to understand how pressuring it would be on somebody else that their form uh, would be. Uh, for example, this is a tough one, but uh, and in these days, but the stereotype threat that whites can feel in interracial conversations about race, 
it's pretty intense because you can feel that one little mistake and you'd be seen as a racist. Right. So uh, think about how that would feel. Yeah. <laughs> and that's probably how she feels. That's, yeah. a, that's a similar set of emotions. So it can take a while. And she probably, as you said, uh, expands her sense of herself and, 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 um, and also her sense of the world that she is in, that it's not quite as menacing as she might think and not mm -hmm. quite as ready to stereotype her as she thinks it is. And, and over time, people build a narrative about the situation there. And I think narrative is a key word there that, that is a little more freeing than the narrative that their fears provide at the outset. Interesting. And I, I think what's really tricky about this, and I'm, I'm thinking about the teachers who are listening, is you never want to be the one to cause that. Right. You, yeah. As a teacher, I would hate to make someone feel that way, but it's not. It's not necessarily the individual. It, these things are yeah. out there in society. Yeah, they come from our history. I think one of the most poignant situations in American society uh, is white teacher talking to minority parents on on a parent day uh, about a student who's not doing so well. Uh, it's a perfect. Uh, illustration of these reciprocating forms of stereotype threat. The the minority family is worried about do you you are you seeing the true promise and talents of my kid? Or are you stereotyping him? And the teacher is saying, are, anything I say, you're going to see me as racist. And that's American history visiting that conversation uh, right there. And the form it takes is this this kind of threat we're talking about. Wow, pretty pretty scary stuff. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We will have more with Claude Steele, Professor Emeritus here at Stanford on Stereotype Threat, next on SiriusXM Insight 121. You're listening to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope from the campus of Stanford University. Welcome back to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We are talking today with our guest, Claude Steele, Professor Emeritus of Psychology here at Stanford, and we're talking about something known as stereotype threat. Before the break, you put us in a situation at a parent-teacher conference. You want to take us back to that moment? I was talking about reciprocal forms of stereotype threat that if you have a white teacher, for example, talking to a minority family about their student who's having problems. It's a good illustration of the minority family having its form of stereotype threat. They don't want to be seen, they're worried about being seen through the lens of negative stereotypes about their group's abilities, aggressiveness, those things. Is this the way my child is being seen? And they're, they're worried about being seen that way. The teacher, by contrast, is worried about being seen as well, if I say anything critical or helpful here, I could be seen as, as a racist or insensitive in some important way. So how do you get around that? What are the solutions? I'll start with the teacher. I think one really good strategy is not to view that conversation as a place where you perform not being racist or where you show your non-racist credentials or something like that. that. That would be a temptation is to present yourself, to whistle Vivaldi and present yourself in a way that is going to, you think, will deflect the stereotype. But I think a sounder more strategy is to ask questions and view it as an opportunity to learn and to learn more and hear more and explore more. And through, through questions, uh, you're off, everybody's a little bit off the spot and you don't feel as susceptible to being stereotyped there. 
Give an example of a question that someone yeah, might ask. Yeah, ex- explore things about the ask questions about the family and about their relationships and what do they see at home and what what do do they want her to understand about the student? Are they missing things? What's just you know all those kinds of things that you might want to be asked if you were the parent in that situation that you'd really want to get that information out. And on the part of the the parents, I think the same strategy holds in general, is to really ask questions. But in addition, try to have a, an understanding, a narrative about the situation that, uh, that isn't as menacing as you might be tempted to have in a situation like, like this. Reduce the degree to which you think you're going to be seen in the worst uh, light and step back, uh, trust for a, a bit. Trust but verify. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. Uh, but but uh, again, explore. Ask. Give yourself. You know, sometimes people use a three count rule. You know, I'll, I'll take this one one utterance that may seem a little suspect. Okay, you're forgiven that. A second one, you're forgiven that. A third one, I may begin to take it to take the darker interpretation more seriously. Uh, but but that strategy gives you the space, the emotional space to actually hear each other in this kind of conversation. And I think people. Good teachers who've had experience with this, parents who've had experience with this, kind of come to these strategies. Uh, uh, but you can see what they're working against, and what they're working against is this form of, uh, of how I'm going to be seen here, how certain behaviors would cause me to be seen. If we were in a different society with different stereotypes, the same identities might not have any, there might not be any charge to it at all. But in our society, given our history, that's a charged situation. And we have to learn how to, to cope with it in order to have successfully diverse schools and, and communities. So, Denise, you, you often go in situations where you will only interact with people once. And oftentimes it's in a fairly symbolic role. You might be a speaker. Do, do you worry about uh, – if I say this the wrong way, everybody's going to have the wrong attribution about me. And because there's no chance to develop rapport – Oh, yeah. You feel, you feel it, it becomes very delicate in your head about how to do this? Oh, yeah, very much so. In fact, I, in, in teaching qualitative research, I just had a perfect example of this. There, there was a little paragraph in this research study, it was qualitative, where she said that she shared a drink with the um, informant. And my students immediately said, you know, like, well, are they alcoholics? I mean, it was like a boom kind of thing, and, you know, and they realized that, that they, she said it was a ritual that we shared a drink. She said it was a ritual that we shared a drink when we talked. And they said, well, what are they, alcoholics? Like, immediately people jump mm-hmm. to the stereotype when you really don't know these people mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I'm, I think the one-off is a much harder mm-hmm. uh, place to diffuse this mm-hmm. than through, as you said, Claude, through relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I, I, I'm a student, uh, and I'm a student who feels threat about math. Maybe it's based on gender, ethnicity, something else. And uh, I'm really stressed out. And so one researcher has made the proposal that the best thing to do is to state your, your concerns out loud. Hmm. And that sort of somehow uh, relieves the pressure, as opposed to what I would have thought it would do, which is basically, you know, put you in a cycle and put you in an echo chamber where you're sort of reaffirming your own. So what are there, are there, what are, what are your thoughts about strategies for the individual who knows they're, they're suffering this kind of, they're, they're, it's a high evaluative situation. They're very worried about it. 
and they are worried about people's perceptions of them. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, again, the word narrative comes to mind as a focus, and uh, I think this is the part of the art of being a parent or a teacher. You're trying to think of yourself as, as helping a student have a healthy narrative about the situation they're in. It has to be realistic, uh, and it has to normalize their anxieties of the sort you, you described, not, not make them feel weird because they have them, but, you know, people in your situation might have them. Um, but at the same time it acknowledges and normalizes the anxiety, it offers some real hope about the constructiveness of a situation. I mean, sometimes that's hard to do, depending on how the, the particular circumstances, but, but generally speaking... Um, uh, you want yes, you could feel uncomfortable in this situation. You could feel that people see you this way. That if you made one mistake, you'd be seen and judged, and so on. A lot of people who come into this kind of situation, if you do feel that way, but actually, you might find yourself really getting involved in the work, and you might find yourself really liking some of that work if you really had a chance to get involved in it like that. And and um, it might be fun, and there might be relationships that you that you'd enjoy, and that you'd build, and it would last a lifetime, and it would help you form a career. And, and start, start to give you a, 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 what we really hope for in, edu- in education, so an image so- of that. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope, and we are speaking with Claude Steele about stereotype threat and particularly what we can do to prevent that or at least ameliorate it a little bit. So it's really interesting. Another proposal is think about other things that are really valuable to you which will mm-hmm. downgrade the, the anxiety about this test because, you know, my family is actually the thing I value most. Mm-hmm. Whereas your narrative is, no, you do value this, but it, you may value it in ways that are quite different than what you thought initially. Mm-hmm. And so, boy, yeah. I, how do – so many, you, you may so have many some, competing possibilities. This yeah, is tough. well, that, that's, that is interesting because I think under some circumstances, a lot of things can be helpful uh, right. here, both the, the, what you described we know can be helpful too. But I, I, I generally think over the long run, and this is, again, when I think about this, I think about parents helping kids deal with this. Uh, uh, parents deal with a, 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 a woman, a, a girl who wants to be in a STEM field. How do you do that? What do you say? Well, you, you, I think you, you begin by acknowledging, eh, you know, not many women in the United States, you, you may feel a little tension about that, but you may come to love the work, and you may find that a lot of people there support that. And that they they really do want you to succeed in that situation. So you you give them a hopeful understanding and truthful. Um, maybe maybe Obama was a genius at this with, at the national level, giving the the giving the Amer- an American society a truthful but hopeful picture of of the kind of society we could have, and it, it mobilized in in that way. And I I, I think. As parents and teachers, this is something that, again, it comes up in, in when, you're, when you try to have a diverse uh, society, a diverse classroom, a diverse school. Then these issues come up. If it was going to be all boys who did STEM, we wouldn't have to worry so much about this. Oh, they, they'd, find, gonna... they'd find a way to differentiate <laughs> yeah. and, and find some reason some should That's be bad. That's true. The stereotypes yeah. are always out there to be had. Yes. And created. Well, we so appreciate you coming on today with us, Claude Steele, and have learned a lot about stereotype threats, something that I think people might not have heard of even before this show, and things that parents and teachers can do to prevent it. So thank you. Thank you for listening to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. 
If you missed any of this episode, listen anytime on demand with the SiriusXM app. From the campus of Stanford University, this has been Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope.